Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Tavini. I'm the lead pastor here at Asbury. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit. So, let's get started. Uh, Last week, I talked about the book of Nehemiah. Before that, we talked about Ezra. This week, we're talking about Esther. Now, these three books are all lumped together in your Bible. They're in the same place, um, largely because they are set in the same period. As I've said before, they're all taking place uh, in this period of time after the Persian Empire has conquered Babylon. The exile is over. Jews are allowed to return to their homeland. However, not all of them do. Many of them will stay behind in Persia, in Babylon, in the various places they live, largely because they've built a life there by this point. They've they've, uh, begun businesses, they've built homes, they've had families, and and they simply don't want to leave yet. Um, Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are two parts of the same story. These are the stories of how Israelites, at this time they start calling themselves Jews because they are no longer confined to the land of Israel, Um, So it's the story of how the Jews return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall and uh, restore sort of some of the former glory of Jerusalem. Um, Esther is really very different. In fact, the whole book of Esther is extremely unusual. Nowhere in this book does the author mention Israel. They don't mention the Torah. They don't mention the covenant. And in fact, it seems throughout the whole book, like God is absent. They don't talk about God at all. He's never mentioned. The characters never pray to God in this story. Uh, It's really odd. And on top of that, the central figure in this story is a Jewish virgin who marries a Gentile king and in the conclusion of the book celebrates retributive violence. So there's a lot going on here that makes it radically different from the rest of the Bible, and it's actually been a very controversial book for its entire existence, Um, right? The Jewish virgins aren't supposed to marry Gentile kings. The people of God aren't supposed to practice retributive violence, Um, and it doesn't mention God at all. So why is it in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible because it's been retained in the Jewish library of sacred texts ever since it was written, which was Uh, at least 350 years before the time of Christ, and maybe a bit earlier than that, too. The date's a little iffy. Um, And so the early Christians saw fit to keep it, too, because it will teach us some important lessons about God. So this story, right, Esther is an orphaned Jew who, after her marriage to the king, is living in the home of a Gentile and is uh, utterly dependent on his provision and on his mercy for her survival. And in that way... She is very much a representative figure for the plight of all the Jewish people who lived in exile and who even after the exile live in, in what's called the diaspora, right? Uh, because, because the Jews, after they have been expelled from their homeland, have spread throughout the ancient world. They're living now in Egypt, and they're living in Syria, and they're living in Persia, and they're still living in Babylon, and, and that will always be the case for a very long time. Um, and so Esther's Esther stands as this figure who represents sort of all of Judaism in her circumstances. And in the midst of all this, God is, even though he's 
not mentioned, right? He is still sort of portrayed as he's the creator of all life and he's engaged with the people, but it seems that he's just kind of hidden in this story. And so the book of Esther shows us that that in spite of very dark and difficult circumstances, ordinary people will step forward, will take courage, and through their actions they will redeem themselves and others. And and this, this is presented as the way that God acts in the world. And so in this way, actually the book of Esther is probably a more realistic story of God than much of the Old Testament, in the sense that most of us can relate to Esther and Mordecai more than we could to, say, King David or any of the the prophets, right? Esther and Mordecai don't hear the voice of God booming out from the heavens. They aren't anointed for great purposes. They are just ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, and it is their remarkable faith and courage that sees them through. That's what makes it special. That's the message here, that sometimes God does not intervene in miracles. Sometimes God just expects his people to be faithful in all things and to trust that he will work it out, even if they can't see what he's up to. So it's really quite a beautiful book because it shows us that, yeah, sometimes, actually, sometimes God's people have to be faithful and be courageous, even though it doesn't seem like God is telling them anything specific at all. Sometimes God's people have to rely on their own discernment and their own knowledge of what God deems as right and wrong to to guide their decisions in the world and to give them the strength to do what's right. I love it. I love that this is a story in which the main characters are just regular people who get thrust into extraordinary circumstances. I love... I love that they have to navigate their way through this incredible problem without ever hearing the miraculous voice of God speaking to them, without any kind of prophet coming and telling them what the will of God is. I love that they just have to to navigate it on their own because so often that's what happens to all of us. We get thrust into difficult circumstances and we have to figure out a way through And God doesn't step in and tell us, hey, by the way, here's this miraculous solution. A prophet doesn't come to us and say, listen, I know you're in a pickle. Here's here's what the will of God wants is, is for you in this situation. Most of us are just like Esther and Mordecai in that we just have to figure it out and trust that God is present with us. So that's the beauty of the book. Now, it's a really interesting book in, in the sense that um, it's not entirely clear if Esther is a real person or not. Um, the king in the story, King Ahasuerus, is uh, sort of a, it's another name for Xerxes, who was a very real figure. We know that Xerxes is a real king. Uh, this is the very same Xerxes who invaded Greece and fought at the famous Battle of Thermopylae, which is made famous by the movie 300, right? Uh, that's, that's, that king in that movie is this king. So just take a minute to reconcile those images in your head. Uh, that that I mean, maybe the movie took some artistic liberties with him, but actually it might not have. Um, we know not only that Xerxes existed, but we know that his sort of extravagant behavior in this story, the throwing of these feasts, the, the way he treats women, uh, the way he sort of treats the people around him in general, right? That we, These actually fit with, the, uh, with what we know of him as a real person. 
Um, unlike his predecessors, Darius and Cyrus the Great, who were both these very, very pragmatic, very serious men who sort of grew up on the battlefield and uh, were not known for indulging in the luxuries that a royal lifestyle could bring. Xerxes is actually the first Persian ruler who is raised as a very pampered prince in the royal court. Cyrus the Great created the Persian Empire. He rose to power through his own merit. Darius did the same thing after the death of Cyrus the Great. Darius was one of Cyrus's generals. So he was not a royal figure until after Cyrus died and Darius seized power. This is the first time the Persians have a ruler who's, who's raised as the heir to the throne. And he's very widely seen by both his subjects and his enemies as, as much more flamboyant and arrogant than his father was. He indulges in the luxuries of the royal lifestyle uh, much more than his predecessors did. So, so the, these stories in Esther actually kind of fit his personality very well, which is interesting. Um, they, they took a, a, a historical figure and really adapted him well to the story. There's no record, by the way, of Esther in any of the Persian documents, and the Persians were really good about keeping documents. But that doesn't mean she never existed. Um, Xerxes very likely had many wives, and it's possible that one was a Jewish girl named Esther, and it's very possible that in in the you know in the intervening centuries that the documents of es of the Queen Esther may have been lost. So it's entirely possible that there really was a Jewish girl named Esther who was married to Xerxes and was Queen of Persia for a time. Um, however, it is abundantly clear that the book of Esther, the story it's telling, is fictional. Um, it's very clearly written as fiction. It's got a very clear structure to it. Uh, it's obviously organized to make a point. Um, they intentionally substitute another name for King Xerxes to avoid offending the real Xerxes. Uh, and... and, uh, and there's also, like, the, the events in the story, right, the planned extermination of the Jews under the Persian Empire, that never happened. Um, under Persian rule, the Jews were really never in any great danger. The Persians were fine with them. There was no, there was no plot to exterminate the Jews under Persian rule, at least not coming from the royal court. There might have been some coming from uh, other lesser figures, but there was never a point where the king of Persia himself was going to set out and wipe out the Jews. So the story is fictional. Uh, so what we essentially have in the Book of Esther is a very is a short little novel, a little novella, um, written to share a theological truth, which is that God works through us and around us to carry forward His purposes, even when it seems like God is absent or silent, and that God works through ordinary people who do not receive miraculous revelations. Uh, the thrust of the story is that you don't have to hear a voice coming down from heaven. You don't have to have a prophet come to you with a message from on high to be someone who accomplishes God's will in the world. Now, here's what's even more interesting. At the end of the book, Esther establishes this festival, right? This festival is called Purim, and it's a real Jewish festival. They still celebrate Purim today. And so actually there's lots of scholars that think that the book of Esther was originally written specifically to create that holiday, which gives the Jewish people a, a new holiday to celebrate a new kind of deliverance, to celebrate that God doesn't just deliver them in the way he did at Passover through incredible, miraculous signs and wonders, but that God also delivers them 
through the faithfulness and the strength and the courage of their people. Very interesting stuff. Wonderful book. I love it. Very easy to read, very short. And you're done with it now. You're on to Job, which I'm preaching about on Sunday. Uh, and so there's not much more to say about the book of Esther. And I'm going to move on. I, I People have sent in a couple of really, really good questions this week that I want to dive into. Um, because they're fantastic questions. And uh, I want to really give them a lot of time. So the first question is um, that in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God is not willing for any to perish, but wants for all to come to repentance. But in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says that the gospel is veiled to the perishing, and the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the glory of God, which would mean that they won't have a chance to repent because of the act of Satan, which appears to be out of their hands, and therefore not their fault. So how does God allow this if he wishes for all to repent. Fantastic question. So first, let's read the verses here. The, the verse in question, 2 Peter 3, 9. This is from the New American Standard Version. Uh, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And in the passage from 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, what is going on here? Well, first, we need to remember that we are dealing with two different authors. First and Second Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. Second Peter is written by Peter. And we actually know that Paul and Peter at times were butting heads. Um, they didn't always see eye to eye, and they take different approaches to teaching the gospel, and that's reflected in how they write. Um, so in this passage in Second Peter, Peter is explaining to his listeners why Christ hasn't returned yet. People are wondering what's taking him so long. They're ready for Jesus to come back, to put the world in order, and reign as their king. And there, there was a clear expectation amongst the very early church, and amongst the apostles themselves, by the way, that Jesus was going to come back literally any day. It seemed to them like he was probably going to come back within their own lifetime. And so they're wondering what's taking so long. What's, what's going on, right? That surely Jesus should come back by now. Where is he? So Peter is explaining that what they are perceiving as a delay in God's plan is actually God's patience. God is waiting as long as he can to return to give as many people as possible a chance to repent and to turn to him because God wants to save everyone. And this is not the same thing as saying that everyone will be saved, but rather that God wants to save everyone. It's in the, and in the interest of saving as many as possible, he will wait to finish things. God would rather offer forgiveness and redemption than, than punishment for your sins. And this is key, right? 
Again, it's not the same thing as saying that God is going to save everybody because some people, no matter what, will always reject God. That's very clear in the New Testament. There's no question that, that there will be people who are not saved because they choose not to be saved. But it's also very clear that God is going to save as many people as he can and he will wait as long as he can to bring about the end of all things in order to save as many people as possible. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a very different set of problems. Um, this is a very sorrowful letter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he, he plans to visit the Corinthian church again. Um, and, and he does, and things don't go as planned, because apparently somebody in their church had decided by that point to oppose Paul and try to discredit him. And so as a result of this very painful encounter, uh, Paul sends what he refers to in 2 Corinthians as his letter of tears, so there's actually a third letter to the Corinthians that takes place that's written in between First and Second Corinthians, and it's just, it's just been lost to us. We don't have we don't have a copy of this, but Paul calls it his letter of tears, and apparently, actually, this letter does what Paul intended, and and the Corinthians punish this wrongdoer who had been trying to discredit Paul, um, but then they become upset with Paul again because they learn that he he is not going to visit them again. Um, they want him to come back. They accuse him now of being inconsistent. And in addition to this, apparently there are some other itinerant preachers going around who are reinforcing some negative opinions about Paul. So 2 Corinthians as a letter, actually the, most of the letter, almost the entire letter, is Paul defending his integrity and his ministry. He's defending himself. Uh, and so in chapter 4, Paul is defending his ministry and he's defending his preaching. And he says he's that he's only ever preached the clear, uncorrupted truth. And if, if people are unable to see that, perhaps they've been blinded by Satan. In other words, Paul is saying, if people didn't understand the gospel message that I preached, it's not my fault. It's Satan's fault. And from the full context of his letters, we can gather that Paul believes very firmly that, that Satan still blinds unbelievers to the truth and he exploits conflict within the church. So what gives, right? If, if God really desires to save everyone, what happens to people who are blinded by an act of Satan, who are prevented from believing the gospel by something beyond their control? Well, in part, this question is answered by Peter in the verses we just read, right? Jesus is waiting to return and judge the world for precisely this reason, right? This is why God hasn't come back yet, because... He wants to save everybody. And it's our job as Christians to help the blind see. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I pointed out in, in my sermon that um, unbelievers think we're crazy, right? Paul's words in, the, in uh, 1 Corinthians are that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And this message is actually pretty consistent, right? The gospel is the power of God for those who believe, but it is foolishness to those who don't. What we believe makes a lot of sense to us, but that's because we already believe. When Paul talks about unbelievers being blinded by Satan, it's not to say it's impossible for them to come to Christ. In fact, he doesn't use the word Satan, right? He, he refers to the ruler of this world. Now, the New Testament treats Satan not so much as an individual, as like a, a sort of a sort of semi-personal force that draws its power from the collective evil and sin of mankind. 
And the reality is we like our sins. And the more we like our sins, the more we lend power to Satan. If we're blinded to the truth of the gospel, it's usually because we like our sins so much. But that doesn't mean we are incapable of repentance. I think Paul would have happily reminded the Corinthians that they at one time had been blinded to the truth by Satan as well. And so this image of of Satan blinding people to the truth of the gospel is not so much that he is absolutely preventing them from repenting and believing the gospel, but rather that he that he makes it more difficult, right? And now the Christian's job is to help them overcome that blindness. And evidently it works. Evidently it works because, of course, all of the people in these churches that Paul writes to would at one time have been blinded by Satan as well. So there is this clear sense in Paul's letters that that Satan is actively working against the spreading of the gospel. But there is also a clear sense that in the end, Satan is powerless against the gospel. Because the gospel is God's power. And Satan only has power that he draws from us. So yes, there are perhaps people who are blinded to the truth of the gospel by Satan. But that blindness is easily overcome. Easily overcome. So we don't have to worry about uh, God punishing us for things that are not our fault. Rather, we can trust that, that God wants to save everybody and God has provided the means to save everybody. And if we are blinded by Satan, it's because we choose to be blinded by Satan. And that brings up another important point, which is that the the gospel never actually, or or, I I should say the New Testament as a whole, never really treats Satan as someone um, who has power, like independent power. Certainly not enough power to challenge God. Satan's power is drawn from us. Satan only has power over us if we choose to give it to him. And that is key. If Satan has power over us, it's because we have handed him that power. But we can take it back. We can take it back. If Satan has blinded someone, it is within that person's power to restore their sight. Let me see it all the time. We see that all the time with people who convert to Christianity. Right? They, they have a sort of a moment where they suddenly realize the truth. And they're no longer worried uh, about some of the things that held them back from believing in God anymore. They simply believe. And the scales fall from their eyes, right? They, they, they see the world as it is after that. So, uh, it's a very good question. And... Especially because it's not the only time you'll encounter things that seem to be contradictory, where God talks about wanting to save everybody, but then says that Satan is actively working against that goal. And the reality is, Satan's power is drawn from us. He can only work against us if we allow him to. And the second we stop allowing him to, he's powerless to stop us. I also had to make a a correction 
to my sermon on Sunday, I said that I made a joke about a, a spiritual gifts test that talked about uh, administration as one of the spiritual gifts. And um, I, and I said I'd, you know, I'd never see that anywhere in the Bible. And, and uh, I've been reminded, actually, that 1 Corinthians 12, 28 <laughs> literally, literally lists administration as a spiritual gift. I'll read it to you. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. Now, I will point out, we'll point out, um, some of these, maybe, I mean, I might argue that that's not so much a spiritual gift as just something that God has appointed for the work of the church, but it's in there nonetheless. It is important to note. It is definitely a function of the body of Christ that some people are meant to be administrators. And I suppose you could interpret that as a spiritual gift. Uh, sometimes pastors don't always get it right when we preach. So I do appreciate having that pointed out to me. Um, now the last question is on 1 Corinthians 11, and the question was basically just, hey, what is going on in 1 Corinthians 11, right? All this talk of, of head covering and things like that. And it's a good question because it's very confusing, very odd. Uh, and, and clearly we don't think of these instructions as something important for us today because we don't make women cover their heads in church. So what's happening? Well, this particular chapter has actually stumped theologians for a long time um, because, you know, all of Paul's letters are, are steeped in a particular cultural context. And it can be difficult to really fully see how that context applies to what he's saying. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 may be the most, uh, of all the things that Paul's written, it is, this chapter is probably more dependent on, a, on an incredibly specific cultural context than anything else because it's, it's specific behaviors in a specific church in a specific culture. And... Um, so there's lots of things he could be talking about. Um, and, well, and, and so this interpretation I'm about to give, it's one possible answer. I think it's a good one. It makes sense to me, but it is by no means the only one. Um, I do think it makes sense though. And so, um, first he, he demands that men stop covering their heads in worship, in worship. Um, and there was a practice amongst the pagan priests in the city of Corinth at the time that the elite among them, the socially elite amongst the priests, would cover their heads with uh, the hood of their cloak or, or some other form of clothing when they went to go pray. And so it seems as though the men in this church of the city of Corinth were doing the same thing, and they were emulating this pagan practice that signified a certain social status. So Paul tells them to stop. Uh, and, and it also seems that the married women in the church were doing the opposite. They were uncovering their heads or possibly um, letting their hair down, literally, instead of having it bound up in a hairstyle, letting it, letting it down loose. Uh, both of those things, <coughs> in that culture, both of those things were a sign of a loose woman, right? A woman who was a, a person of loose morals. Um, 
either way, and, and and really, no matter which interpretation you want to go with of, of, of this book, and there are plenty of other cultural practices people have identified as being the problem here, um, but no matter what they are, Paul's concern in, in this chapter is missional. He is worried about how the church will be perceived. He doesn't want people to walk in and see them emulating pagan cultural practices. He doesn't want them to look in and see what they perceive to be a bunch of loose women. He wants them to understand what the church is about just by looking. He's deeply concerned that the church puts out the right image so that people will know what they're getting into when they walk into the church. So for us, this might be a bit different, right? It might, it might mean that we need to be mindful of how we dress at church, which doesn't mean we need to walk in in a three-piece suit, but it does mean that maybe, maybe we all ought to be a little concerned with how we appear on Sunday mornings. Not for shallow reasons, but so that people understand that, hey, this is a time of worship, and it's reverent, and it's important. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So if you're reading 1 Corinthians 11, I would just say that the thing to think about is how, how does your appearance when you're in church affect the perception of what the church is? And that's it. You know, that, that can mean many things, and we don't have any strict rules about that because, well, we just don't need to. Um, the second half of that chapter, by the way, deals with um, an abuse of the Lord's Supper. The custom in the churches during Paul's time was that when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was an actual meal, and each person brought food and wine to contribute so they would all sort of get together and have this big feast. But in Corinth, what's happening is that the wealthier church members are bringing excessive amounts of food and wine and then refusing to share. So they're gorging themselves on all their food, they're getting drunk on all their wine, all while the poorer members of the church, who often wouldn't have been able to bring anything at all, literally had to sit and watch them stuff themselves and drink themselves into a, you know, maybe some kind of drunken stupor while they were going hungry. And it's this horrible, grotesque abuse of the Lord's Supper that Paul is concerned with in the second half of 1 Corinthians 11. Whew. Okay, folks. That is it for this week. Uh, we covered a lot of territory. I'll be back again with another podcast next week. And until then, God bless you all.